Thank you, Dale. Oh, wasn't that a, just an amazing experience to worship together? And just to remember that uh, the gospel transcends language and uh, culture and all those other differences that we could put up. Um, Christ is worshipped. And, and I thought of, of Revelation 5, where around the throne, people from every language, tribe, and tongue worship. That's going to be eternity. And, and we're going to look forward to that. So I, I find that helpful sometimes when you think of differences and, oh, they're so different, and, oh, the way they do this, or, or I can't understand them, or whatever. And, oh, no, if they're a believer, I'm going to be in eternity with that person. I'm going to, I'm going to be in eternity worshiping Christ with that person. Just sweet to uh, remember those realities and to see God's work of what he's doing, something we prayed for, um, over the years and see him building a church there to reach this community. Um, and, and there are a number of, of people involved there in, that were present here today that, that don't know Christ yet. Um, and so they're reaching people who, who are unreached in a sense. So um, keep praying for our brothers and sisters there at Berea and what God's doing there. So, well, as we continue in Exodus, we're going to begin really into a section that lasts through chapter 40 will be a lot of um, construction and the garments of priests and more construction and a golden calf and Moses on the mountain and more sacrifices and so forth. So it is a, a denser section and we're going to cover some kind of bigger sections here. So you'll notice today we're covering really three chapters. Dale read a good portion of chapter 25, but uh, we are really covering uh, all the way through chapter 27. So uh, let's pray and ask for God's help with this. Our Father, as we come to your word, we need your help. And we just admit with sections like these, we would, in our flesh, get bored, uh, tired, maybe frustrated, confused. So we need you to help us. Help us see why this is here, to help us see the beauty of it, to help us see the purpose of it for, for your word and, and its meaning to pierce our hearts and to change us and to point us to Christ and to, and to bring us to worship. We need your help. Please, God, help this flock here. Thank you that you love to help your people and show your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we have five kids, and uh, one of the things that means is that we have had five opportunities to bring home a baby from the hospital. And uh, the process of getting ready for that is pretty involved generally. If you've been around it, you kind of know, but you just have a lot to figure out. Where is this baby going to sleep, right? And hopefully you've got enough room for that. And often there's, there's a particular room. You try to figure out which room are they going to be in, which room would work for them. And then you're deciding on colors for decorations and maybe paint colors. And then you paint the room and you put up decorations and you have to decide on the furniture. And then you have to assemble the said furniture. And then you got to pick up, pick out bedding, and you, you got to baby-proof the outlets and the doors, and you got to collect diapers in mass, and then you have to find clothing, and, and, and there's this immense amount of preparation that goes into 
this whole idea of a baby coming to live with you, right? It's a pretty significant undertaking uh, with tons of details to think about and plan through. And um, it's a significant events investment with lots of thought and time and money that goes into it. And yet, as parents, you don't see it as a burden. You don't see it as boring. This baby is worth it. This little one is going to come live in your home and you get to, get to care for it and watch it grow and, and, and love it and nourish it and train it up. And it is this privilege. You get to be with this baby. You get to see it. You want to be near it. You want to have a place that's perfect for them. And on a broad level, it's not hard to see parallels with our text today. This text is about the Israelites getting ready for God to come and dwell among them. And it's full of details. It's full of investment and cost and time and energy and, and precious metals and, and all of the, the almost tediousness of getting a place ready. But it wasn't a burden. It wasn't boring for them. God was coming to live with them, dwell with them. It was glorious. It was, they were eagerly anticipating it. And here's what we want to do today is try to catch a little bit of that, right? In the midst of all of the details of fabrics and, and different precious metals and, and links of, of how big everything was to be and different pieces of furniture, in the midst of that, we want to catch a glimpse of why this is such an amazing reality that God was coming to dwell with his people. So, we're going to look more closely at this. What we have here really is a set of building instructions for the tabernacle and its furniture. The tabernacle is just another word for uh, the, the tent that God was going to dwell in. It's also called this a sanctuary at time, which means like a, a holy place. It's also called a tent of meeting at times. But this tent, if you will, was, was to be constructed in a certain way. And so we're going to start this morning by just doing a quick flyover of these chapters. And then we'll get into the meat of, of what we're going to, the meaning and the purpose of all of this. Okay? So, we begin in chapter 25, verses 1 through 7. And what we have there is a collecting of the materials. Like before you're going to do the building, you collect the materials, right? This generally is, if you're doing a recipe, you get all the, the ingredients out, and then you start doing it. And this is kind of the idea. I'm gathering all the ingredients, making sure we have everything, right? And so that's what we see. Um, in addition, it's interesting in this, is that in the collection of the materials, you notice that God does something where he invites the people to come and bring it. And he invites them to come and bring whatever is on their hearts, right? So he involves the people in this from the beginning, which is really a privilege for them, and he invites them to give willingly from their hearts, to be a part of this making a dwelling place for God. The instructions for the construction, after they've collected everything, begin with the very center, the core piece of the tabernacle, which was the Ark of the Covenant. See this in chapter 25, 9 through 22. The Ark was essentially a box, it was about three and three quarters feet long, two and a quarter feet wide, and about two and a quarter feet tall. Okay, so it was a, not a large box. 
It was made out of acacia wood, a kind of wood that you would find in the desert. It was covered with a layer of pure gold. And eventually, the two stone tablets of the law that God would give Israel would go into this box. The top of the box is unique. It is referred to as the mercy seat or, or just mercy cover. It's not necessarily seat in the original, but um, it was made from pure gold, so very heavy, and it was topped with two gold cherubim. These are angelic beings who we see in Scripture often in the presence of God, standing guard so that people can't just come into the presence of God. And like the rest of the furniture, this ark was made to be portable. It had rings on the feet that would then have poles slide through them to be able to carry it easily. Remember at this point, people of Israel are a nomadic people. They are traveling through the wilderness and so they're constantly on the move. So they would set up this tabernacle. And then maybe in a few days later, the, the glory of God would move on in that cloud, remember, that led them through the wilderness. It would move on and they would move on to the next stage of their journey. Um, and they would need to pack all of this up. And so all of this is made portable. And you see this in much of the furniture. The ark was to be the symbol, really, of at the center of all of this, of God's presence. This was the place where he sat. Again, the idea of a mercy seat. Or, perhaps as some scholars propose, and maybe more accurately, it was seen as the footstool of his throne. So as he sat on his throne, this was simply the footstool. This was where the people of Israel would meet with God. Look at chapter 25, verse 22, the very end of where Dale read. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. There I will meet with you. That's at the center of the tabernacle. The second item described is the table. This was in the next court out so the very inner area where the where the uh, ark of the covenant was was the holy of holies uh, the next stage out there was a veil that we'll talk about that separated the next room in this tent was where we find this table it was again made out of acacia wood again covered with pure gold again equipped with the rings and the poles it was about three feet long by a a foot and a half wide by two and a quarter feet high. Okay, so it was a rather kind of a console table type size, if you will. With it, there were various plates and bowls, dishes that were to be used in worship. And on this table would be placed the bread of the presence. We later learned there were 12 loaves that were placed on it, symbolizing Yahweh's provision for the 12 tribes of Israel and inviting them into fellowship with him, a fellowship meal. Next, we have the lampstand in chapter 25, verses 31 to 40. It is made of pure gold, one piece of gold hammered into this lampstand with seven lamps, three on each side and one in the middle. And this lampstand was fashioned to look something like a tree with branches and flowers. It may well have been, as many commentators have noted it may well have been a symbol or a reflection of the tree of life from the Garden of Eden. It spoke of God's provision of light and life to his people. Way down at the end of chapter 27, we get instructions for the oil to be used in these lamps. 
which were to burn continually. Next, we have the tabernacle tent itself. So you think of in, in the very inner, you have the Ark of the Covenant, and in the next room, you have the table, and then you think of the tent itself. Chapter 26, in the beginning of that chapter. From what we read, it seems that there were four layers to this tent. It's kind of interesting. It probably had uh, you know, reasons of protection from weather, but also to provide security. There was first this layer of linen curtains that would have cherubim woven into them. So again, we see the cherubim. Then you'd have a layer of goat, goat's hair curtains. Then you had ram skins. And then finally, you had goat skins on the outside. Various pieces of the tent, there was all separate pieces to be packed up easily. So you think of a tent maybe in one big piece, but it was actually separate pieces. And these pieces were attached by various clasps and supported by bases and frames and such. As to the size of the tent, it was about 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and about 15 feet high. So think of that 45 feet by 15 by 15. Again, there was the smaller room inside this tent, the Holy of Holies, and then the larger room, the Holy Place. Toward the end of chapter 26, we get the veil, which really uh, describes the large, thick curtain that separated those two rooms, the Holy Place and the Most Holy Place. It was woven, again, with vibrant, colored fabric, fine fabric, Fabric that was colored in royal hues, and it separated where the ark was from the outer area of the table and the lampstand. Now look at chapter 27. There in chapter 27, after you get the instructions for the tabernacle and the, the veil, you have the instructions in chapter 27 for the altar. The altar would be outside of the tent. So if you think of uh, there you have the tent, this 45 foot by 15 by 15, and then outside of the tent you had this altar. It was approximately four and a half feet high, and then seven and a half feet wide on either side, so a square. It's a large box with a grating on the top, and then it seems from reading a grating about halfway down or so, maybe you could think of a kind of large barbecue, right? The altar would be out in the courtyard. It would be the first thing you saw when you walked in. It was where the sacrifices, the burnt offerings would be made. Various other sorts of offerings. Next you have in chapter 27 verses 9 through 19, you have instructions for the courtyard walls. It's kind of a portable curtain or wall that would be set up around the tabernacle structure. Um, think of maybe in our day a pipe and drape, if you're familiar with that idea. It was about 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, totaled somewhere around 11,000 square feet. Think of, uh, I saw one comparison to if you had four tennis courts set up all together. That might be about the size of the tabernacle court. So you got this court of the tabernacle, Within that, you have the tent, the tabernacle proper, and then in the courtyard you, outside, you have the altar. Also, you have a wash basin, which we do not have, is not listed in the text here. We'll look at that in future weeks. So you have all of this, this set up in immense detail, really astounding, 
And this is just the beginning. Like I said, we're going to cover more even in future chapters. And, and I don't know about you, but as you read it, you could go a couple of different directions with it, right? You could treat it, and you look at the book of Exodus, and it's like, okay, we got past the exciting part, and now we're into this. Okay, what do I do with this? Is this kind of like an epilogue? You know, if you're a reader, like an epilogue, oh, this is the part that, you know, I don't really, or maybe this is like an appendix. That's even, I think, worse than an epilogue. Like, if you don't read, you know, epilogues are like, yeah, I probably should read that. Appendixes are like, oh, I don't have to read that. I'm out, right? Um, and, and we can look at this like that. It's like, oh, this is the details that we don't really need to know or care about, and we can just go on and pass, pass, go past them quickly. Now, we, we know our Bibles. We know, okay, this is from God. All scriptures God breathes profitable. So, okay, I know I shouldn't think that way about this, but uh, I kind of do if I'm honest. And, and I want us to just kind of wait and say, hey, let's slow down. And in passages like this, I think what's so helpful is to ask the question, if it's here, it's from God. And if it's here, then God has a purpose for it. And so I think it's helpful to ask that question. Why did God put this here? Why does he spend so much time on it? Why does God think this is a big deal? Because clearly he does. He wants us to see something here. The detail of it, the length of this, all should tell us, no, this is important to God. It's not actually an epilogue or an appendix. It's actually, maybe it's more like the climax of this whole thing. Maybe like everything else was an introduction and now we're getting to the main thing. I don't know if you're convinced yet of that. It's hard still. But here's what I want to do with the rest of our time is to try to convince you of huge truths that are coming through in these chapters that show us, no, this isn't just a, an appendix. This is actually where everything really starts and gets going, okay? So we're going to look at four reasons that God spends so much time on the tabernacle and its construction, okay? Number one, the tabernacle speaks to Yahweh's worth. Yahweh, if you remember, is the personal name of the God of Israel. I am who I am. It, it speaks of his self-existence, his self-sufficiency, right? His eternality. And we are simply saying this tabernacle, as he gives instructions for it, it speaks to his worth. Now, one of the things that's easy to forget here is that the entire nation of Israel was living in tents, right? And this tabernacle is a tent, okay? So this, this is a tent. They were all in tents, but what becomes very clear in these chapters is that this was not just another tent, was it? This, this was no ordinary tent because its resident was no ordinary resident. Yahweh, the living God, is of supreme worth. He is infinitely glorious. He is valuable beyond our comprehension. This is why we have so much detail, so much precision, because he's worth it. This is why the craftsmanship was so important. The hammered gold, the cherubim woven into the fabric. And we'll see more of this in chapter 31. Why? Because he is worth it. This is why we have such a wealth of valuable materials. Gold and silver and bronze and fine linens and skins. Why? Because he's worth it. 
What's the point? The point is that he is worth all of this. It's interesting. Commentators note that when you look at the tabernacle and the inner area and then you go out from that, you notice that the closer you are to the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence was made manifest, the closer you get to that, is the more valuable the materials become. On the cover of the Ark of the Covenant is what? It's solid, pure gold. You have layers of of, of wood covered with gold. And then if you move outward, eventually you have silver and out the, the, the altar itself is bronze. As you get closer to the presence of God, you have the more precious, the more valuable elements and material. Why? Because God is worth it. And here's the simple question for us. Has the worth of God changed? Has God depreciated since then? No, God does not depreciate. And then the question becomes, you know, do we, do we value God? Do we see Him as supremely worthy? It's not going to be seen necessarily in our church buildings, but it will be seen somewhere. It will be seen in the way we as His temple live our lives. Do we think and live like God is a cheap toy that we just forget about after our initial excitement? Do our affections and our lives reflect that He is infinitely worthy? What is the way we spend our time and our money show about how much we value God? How does where we put our energy, what we get excited about, does that show anything about the worth of God? It's so easy to let other things creep in and become what we value most. Our ease, our things, our entertainment, our kids, our security, our pets, our fun. And they become what is most valuable, not God. Hold them up for a second. Whatever that thing is that you're tempted to value supremely, say, this is where it's at. This is, whatever your time maybe is showing, like what you do with your free thoughts, whatever it is, hold that up. Oh, that entertainment. Oh, that, that career success. Hold that up next to the living God and ask yourself, what is most valuable? Having those friends like me or the living God of infinite glory. Having that comfort and ease of you know, not having to worry about my finances or, or having my health be good or the God who has made all things and reigns in infinite holiness. What is most valuable? And the question for application is, how does that work itself into our lives? What does that look like? How can we have our lives point to the worth of Yahweh? Number two, the, first, first the tabernacle speaks to Yahweh's worth. Secondly, the tabernacle speaks to Yahweh's holiness. The term holiness speaks of separateness, of otherness. In other words, God is not like us. 
He is not like any of his creatures or his creation. There are ways in which we reflect him and are like him. We're made in his image. But there are ways in which he is simply holy. He is other than us. He is not finite. He he does not sin. He is not ordinary. He is holy. The tabernacle is constructed to reflect God's holiness. You could see this in some of the materials used, in the purity of the gold, in the quality of the linen. You see this also in the layout of the tabernacle. There is a most holy place. It is reserved, it is separate, it is set apart. Only the high priest can enter there, and only once a year, and only with blood. It is not an ordinary common place that's just thrown around and people can tramp in there with their muddy feet. It is separate because God is separate. It's holy because he is holy. And then from the most holy place, you have the holy place. And even there, only a priest can go in. Only an ordained and appointed priest who has been cleansed and offered sacrifices. Only then can they go in. Why? Because God is holy. And then even in the courtyard, people of Israel couldn't enter, but only with cleansing. Only if they were, are ceremonially clean and only if they have offered sac- they're bringing sacrifices, right? You can't just walk into God's presence. Between each of these, you know, you have the most holy place and the holy place and the courtyard. Between each of these are veils and curtains and skins and portable walls. Why? To set apart God, to say he is holy and sinful, finite human beings cannot simply walk into the presence of the living and holy God. There is distance, there is separation. As a worshiper, imagine coming to worship. Leave your tent. You think through, am I ceremonially clean? You know, there's regulations, and you could go read the book of Leviticus and think through that. Um, Okay, what offering am I bringing to atone for my sins? Because I know I'm not clean spiritually before God. What offering am I bringing? And and okay, I'm going to come into this courtyard and... Uh, the priest is going to maybe ask me some questions. I know that I need to offer my offering. And then I stand back and I watch the priest do his work and I worship. But I know that I can't enter into that holy place or the most holy place because I'm sinful. And God is holy, separate from sin. Tabernacle is showing the holiness of God. It's showing, as we'll see in our next point, our need for a sacrificial lamb who will make us holy so that we can enter in. But for now, notice a couple of interesting connections, I think, in the New Testament with this whole idea of God's tabernacle or temple being holy. They're both in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is... Paul is dealing with church leaders and he's talking about the potential for church leaders either to help the church by preaching Christ and helping build up the church or to damage the church by preaching something different than Christ. And he says these words that are very sobering about leaders who damage the church with false doctrine. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. What's he saying? He's saying the church together 
They're God's temple. God doesn't dwell in a tabernacle tent anymore. He doesn't dwell in a temple or a building anymore. Where does God dwell on earth? In his people, in the church, the people of God. And if a leader gets up and leads God's people astray from Christ, that leader is damaging God's holy temple, God's holy dwelling, his people. And God will destroy him. So God's holiness and the holiness of his temple or tabernacle, the holiness of his people, his people have been set apart for him, should impact the way we treat the church, the way we treat God's people, the way we are careful not to ever lead God's people towards error, towards falsehood, towards the world and sin. That's the first thing in 1 Corinthians where we see this applied, right? Because God is holy and his temple is holy, therefore we are careful how we treat God's church. The second one is in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul is calling on the Corinthians to flee from sexual immorality. And it's interesting, he uses some of the same logic, only this time it's applied to individuals. So there's a sense in which together, corporately, as a body, we're God's temple, where his spirit dwells. There's also a sense in which individually as Christians, we are God's temple. He dwells in us. Therefore, it matters how we use our body. We don't go engage in sexual immorality. Why not? Because we're called to be God's holy temples where he dwells. Impurity isn't to make its way into our bodies through sexual immorality. Because he's holy. He set us apart to be his own. The tabernacle speaks to God's holiness, a holiness that's to be reflected in his people. Number three now, the tabernacle speaks to Yahweh's provision. Think for a moment about some of the furniture in the temple that we've talked about. The Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, there was the covenant, those tablets that would have the law on them, that would give and provide for God's people how they were to live, how they were to worship him, how they were to live as a community that reflected him. God was providing for his people in that. Then there was the table for bread. It pointed to the reality that God was providing for his people. He provided for them through the wilderness in the manna. And he provided for their every physical need and he provided for their spiritual needs. And that bread that was put on that table was a reminder of that. I am your provider. I'm going to keep providing you sustenance. Then you have the lampstand, again, providing for God's people, providing for them light. And it pointed to this way that Yahweh provides light and life for his people. Then there was the altar out in the courtyard, a provision from God. Here, here's, here's an altar on which you can offer sacrifices so you can enter my presence and draw near. Now, all of these provisions from the ark and the covenant to the bread on the table to the lamp, the light from the lamp to the altar and the sacrifices, all of them were from God, but all of them ultimately point to the supreme provision of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the final revelation of God, the Word made flesh, 
who reveals the Father, who shows us perfectly what it looks like to live in God's good design. Jesus, we're told in the Gospel of John, he says and declares that he is the bread of life, given for the life of the world. He provides nourishment for life that lasts into eternity. Jesus, he says in the book of John, he says, I am the light of the world, giving light and life to those dwelling in darkness. And Jesus is the final provision of a perfect sacrifice who gave himself so that we could draw near, so the veil would be torn, separating us, and so that we would have access. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of cre this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So he says, there's an earthly tabernacle that Israel had, but Jesus entered into the heavenly tabernacle, the real thing, and offered his own blood so that we could now come in. The tabernacle speaks of God's provision of revelation, of nourishment, of bread, of light and life, and of a sacrifice that we need to have access to God. It speaks to God's supreme provision in Jesus Christ. Fourthly now, the tabernacle speaks to Yahweh's goal. The tabernacle's very existence the details of the layout, the materials, and construction were designed so that God might dwell with his people. I don't know if you wonder about this, but do you ever feel like God is far from you? Or do you ever wonder if God wants to be close to you? I think sometimes we feel like that. Like he's far away. Probably trying to stay away from us, maybe. And the tabernacle preaches something very different. It says, no, I want to be with my people. I want to dwell with my people. I want to know them and live in relationship with them. Do you believe that about God? He wants you to be with Him. He wants you to live in relationship with Him. He wants to dwell with you. All of redemptive history is moving towards that. Yeah, there, it's a big mess. Yes, there is distance created by our sin. But God is doing everything necessary and has done everything necessary in Christ to remove every obstacle. Why? So that we feel better about ourselves and go on our way? No, he has done all of that so that he might dwell with us and live in relationship with them. That's the goal of everything. It's the point of everything. And we would know that this is where eternity is headed. Go read chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, the very end of the Bible. What's, what does it say there? And I will dwell with their people. I will be their God. 
and they will be my people. That's the point. And that's the point of the tabernacle. The word tabernacle in Hebrew literally means living place or habitation. God's going to live there, is the idea, in the middle of his people. And if you read further, I don't know if it's in the book of Exodus or Leviticus, God gives instructions for where the tabernacle is supposed to be set up when they camp. You know where it is? Right in the middle of everyone. Not outside the camp where they can't draw near. No, the tabernacle is to be set up in the very center of his people. And there's the other title for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Well, who's meeting? Well, God is meeting with his people. Isn't that beautiful? That's, that's what he says back in 25a. I think we, we looked at that, but it, it says in chapter 25, verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Make them, I, I want them to make me a sanctuary, a holy place. Why? Why? That I might dwell in their midst. You can see this also just in the construction of, of the tabernacle. In some senses, it's like any other home. It's a tent. He's going to live there. And there's a footstool, and there's a table, and there's a lamp. One commentator gave this interesting point about the lamp. He, he, he was, you know, it's burning all of the time. And so you can imagine at night, and, and, and no other tent in the Israelite camp would have as much light as this lamp would have provided. And you can imagine them seeing the light from this, this tabernacle lamp, right? And, and somewhat, you imagine it like in our day, if you see someone's porch light on, often you think, oh, someone's home, right? And you just imagine the Israelites seeing that lamp burning. And they, someone's home. Guess who's home? God is home. Dwelling in the midst of his people. The living God that they could come and draw near to. They could bring sacrifices and worship. Dwelling in the midst of his people. Scholars have noted that this tabernacle that we see the construction for here seems to reflect other times in scripture where God dwells with his people. There are ways in which the tabernacle seems to reflect the Garden of Eden. You might think of the lampstand that kind of seems like the tree of life in some ways. Also, you have the cherubim, which we see in the Garden of Eden, right? Um, there are ways in which it seems to reflect the Garden of Eden. What, what happened there? What was God's relationship with his people at that point? He was dwelling with them. He was walking with Adam and Eve in the Garden with them. Or think of where they're at now. Right now, they are in, at Mount Sinai, right? At Mount Sinai, they're doing what? They're meeting with God. And at Mount Sinai, you might remember there were, there were barriers, there were boundaries set up where certain pe only Moses could go to the very top and meet with God, and then lower down, the elders met with God, and then beyond that, the people were similar to the tabernacle. There was fire and smoke, which is something later we'll see that was a part of the tabernacle with the, the, the incense and, and the cloud that the incense would create. What's the point? This is almost like a portable Mount Sinai where God would dwell with them and among them. Ultimately, though, it seems that the tabernacle was patterned after heaven itself. Look at chapter 25, verse 9. Exactly as I show you in the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make. 
God was going to show Moses some kind of pattern. And then chapter 25, verse 40, says, And see that you make them after the pattern which is being shown you on the mountain. And then chapter 26, verse 30, Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan that you were shown on the mountain. And then remember the passage we read in the book of Hebrews. It seemed to indicate that. In chapter 9, but look at Hebrews 8. Here's another verse from Hebrews. It says, they serve a copy. This was talking about the priests, the Levitical Israelite priest. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So this tabernacle was a copy of heaven in a sense. Now, we could try to speculate exactly what is in heaven and are all these pieces of furniture in heaven. I don't think that's the point. The point really being narrowed down here is God here in the tabernacle is in a sense bringing heaven to earth. He's dwelling with his people. He's welcoming them into his presence to live in relationship with him. Jesus reflected this too, didn't he? In fact, in John 1, John writes that the word became flesh, and you could literally translate the next phrase, and tabernacled among them. Jesus came, dwelled here. Why? So that we could be with him and live in relationship with him. Church, in Christ, we get to enjoy this now. In fact, we read that in Ephesians 2, the very beginning of our service this morning. That we now have access. The veil has been torn. The final sacrifice has been made. We have full and open access to the presence of the living God. He welcomes us as His children. And His Spirit enables us to cry, Abba, Father. We can draw near. Here's what I want us to get. We have an immense privilege of having God dwell in our hearts and to get to enjoy communion with him in his presence every single day. What does that look like in our lives? We get to get up in the morning and approach the throne of grace in prayer. We get to open up the scriptures every day and see the light of his revelation. We get to walk through our day depending on his guidance, knowing that he is with us. He is present. We get to simply enjoy being his children. We get to gaze upon the beauty of his holiness. Here's my question. How do we live in that day in and day out? Let's keep this on our mind this week. Just begin this week to remember this reality that God wants to dwell with us, that He and His Spirit dwells in us. He wants this relationship with us. He wants us to commune with Him and walk with Him through life. Let's remember that truth. Let's be blown away by that. Let's seek to enjoy that and live in that. 
I am God's and he is mine. And he wants to dwell with me and live in relationship with me this week, this day, this minute. I want to walk with him. I want to enjoy this reality that he wants to be with me and dwell with me in my life and in my heart. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you desire to dwell with your people and that you have shown that supremely in Christ. He came to us and he lived among us and he died for us. He rose again to bring about this reality that you would dwell with us and in us. Show us what it looks like to live in that. Lord, make that real in our lives this week, please. And we long for the day when we experience the sinfulness. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our hearts. And we pray that if any are here who do not know you, who are far from you, that you would bring them near. That they would know what it is for you to dwell with them and in them. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The benediction today is from 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 17. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You are now dismissed.